0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. We thank you for the truth that we have sung about. We thank you that you alone can take away our sin. And Father, praise you for the freedom that comes from the fact that what is done already can be taken care of. Father, it's one thing for us to pledge or uh, vow that we're going to do better in the future. But Father, I praise You that what's already been done in the past can also be forgiven. And so Father, we praise You that uh, Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I pray that as we look into Your Word now, that You would help us to appreciate that more uh, clearly. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe seated I read some time back that you can tell about someone's personality not only by the bumper stickers they have on their car, but how many bumper stickers they have on the car. And it, it, it was in the context of warning you, me, really, as a driver, not to cut off someone whose back was plastered with bumper stickers because they will be madder than someone if you cut them off and they don't have any bumper stickers. And the article went on to say that the reason for that is that the people who put bumper stickers on their car have more ownership of the ideas that they express and of their personal space around their car, so just file that away when you 're driving this week. Be careful around cars that have multiple bumper stickers well this I say that because the whole idea that somebody cares about the things they put on their bumper is really interesting to me i I'm doing my best uh, as a Christian to understand the people around me and the the people that God has called me to engage with. And so I do, I I admit, I do read bumper stickers. And on the way home on Tuesday, I was following uh, a car that had purple and green, of all things, bumper sticker, and all I could read was "without." And then we came to the stop sign. Okay, I, I kind of got up close enough. And the without was in the center. And it said, Good without God. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, I know quite a few people like that. I don't know too many people that necessarily would flaunt that. But it, it is interesting that they would. So... I thought, I'm gonna take a picture of that for everyone. Okay? So we're at the, we're at the stop sign, they pull away, and then we come to the next stop sign, and I'm thinking, this is my chance. They didn't stop. And then they turned at my turn, and there was another stop sign, and they didn't stop there either. And so they were good without God except for the driving part. And I thought about, what it means to be good without God. And I, I thought about that for a whole day until I'm on my way. This is the honest truth. Until I'm on my way home the next day. Well, I'm on my way home the next day and there, in the same stop sign. There's another car in front of me with another bumper sticker. And, and my, my first thought was, you know, okay, is this going to be as good as yesterday's bumper sticker? And lo and behold, and I hope this wasn't anybody here, (laughs) lo and behold, the, the bumper sticker read, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Now, I put those two together as I'm thinking about the world in which I live. And I think that really does describe the the human predicament. It just describes a culture in which we live where we have people who are good without God, on the one hand, trying to justify themselves that they're good without God. And then we have people, on the other hand, who are probably looking at those people saying, you're not as good as you think you are. Jesus loves me, but or Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And so we have these two, uh, poles, you might say, in, you know, human existence of those that are good without God and those who are Jesus' favorites. And I began to think, what does the gospel say to them? What is the good news of God for people with this bumper sticker and people with this bumper sticker? What is it that God wants to say To those who are claiming to be good without God. And what is it that God wants to say to those who say. I'm Jesus' favorite. And as you think about that. I mean I couldn't help. I've been in church the last few weeks too. I couldn't help but sort of review. What I had heard in uh, the book of Romans. About how. How human beings have lived autonomously from God and chosen to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and lived in an ungodly way toward God and lived in an unrighteous way toward one another. I thought about how they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, they would say, I'm good without God. And then I Thought about what we heard last week in Romans chapter two, first few verses that say, you know, um, those of you who judge other people, you better beware when you do the same things yourself. And so there are these two poles, and and believe it or not, the book of Romans speaks very clearly. To the need that both of these cards, well, both of the drivers, have for the gospel. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we'll begin reading in uh, verse 6. Verse 6 is really short and it introduces the main idea of the in, this entire section. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first... And also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges The secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here we have the Apostle Paul uh, addressing the drivers of both of uh, these cars. Good without God and um, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And he addresses them by reminding them And reminding me that there is no partiality with God. He doesn't grade on a curve. There is no way to be the teacher's pet. That everybody is judged by the same standard. And you recall that, and I I want to make sure that you recall this, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, there is both the magnet and the whip. There is a magnet that says, The kindness of God leads us to repentance. So the discussion we're having today is framed by the invitation to repent, by the invitation to come to God for forgiveness. And it's also introduced in verse five by the fact that there are people who are heaping up for themselves wrath. So that God on that day will judge them for their wrongdoing, and so this is the whip. There is the whip, and there is the the magnet, the the carrot, and the goad that that causes us to turn to Jesus, and that's that's why we have this section here, so that we will recognize we need to turn to Jesus, and so with with that kind of as the the opening. I just want to make sure you're clear on the thesis. Each, You will render to each one according to his works. There is not a double standard. There's not a different standard for my Wednesday car and a different standard for my Thursday car. There's not a different standard for the uh innocent pagan in the jungle than there is for the busy executive in the city. There's not a different standard for the... Atheist than there is for the churchgoer, because he will render to each according to his works. You can expect the same treatment from God. That's the that's the the theme that that uh, arches over this whole text. And so he goes on then to explain it. And he explains it in an, in an interesting way that, that he's really highlighting what's at the beginning and the end of this little part by going next to what is um, good and he's going to wind up with what's good and in the middle he's going to talk about what's evil. It's, it forms kind of an arrow there, you might say. And so here is the first um, first offer of good. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. This is a buzzword. This is what we think about when we think about being saved, right? Someone who who is saved gets eternal life. Good for them. They get eternal life. They're saved. But this isn't the way that we would normally think about how you get saved. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, He gives eternal life. But he does. And so there isn't a different standard where and and it just depends kind of how you're feeling that day. Right. If you're feeling really generous, you might say, well, that that poor person who's maybe never heard, they get a different standard. They don't have to be quite as patient in well-doing because they haven't really heard. Right. Or, on the other hand, there are days when, when you're not feeling so generous and you're feeling maybe a little more guilty. And you're thinking, those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try and do a little better here myself. And the reality is, he gives to each one according to their works. And you just need to file that away. That there isn't this fluctuating standard, there is no curve upon which, uh, the, the grade of heaven is given. And it is not, it is not a subjective standard that I can say anyone, anyone as good as me or better gets in. Or I, or, that's, that's pretty high standard when you say. I might, I might like look out there and pick somebody else, right? Anybody better than them, and of course I'm better than them. So, anybody better than them gets in. There is no curve like that. Okay? Those who in by patience and well-doing or who by consistent effort and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality. Now, I don't know if any of you are filing that away thinking, "Hmm, Wonder how consistent I've been in my well-doing. Right, that, that probably is a question that should be raised by this text. We'll just keep going. Okay, there's another set of people, and he divides them really into two sets. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so there is this other group, Who is self-seeking. Now all of a sudden that word self-seeking does cause us a little bit of trouble. Because it's pretty easy for me to look in the mirror and identify at least one of those people as self-seeking. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness. Who make the choice, maybe through harsh words, maybe through uh just a small little petty theft, or maybe who cheat on their taxes, or maybe who uh, don't <clears throat> don't stop at stop signs, or maybe who uh, are far more unrighteous, far more dismissive of the truth of God. I mean, be, be clear that those who seek their own good and who ignore God's truth, but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will come a day when God will settle all scores. There will be a day when the imagery that Jonathan Edwards used in sinners in the hands of an angry God of a of a spider dangling over a fire will seem mild compared to the reality of the judgment of God. There's not two standards. There's not a most of the time self most of the time good part of the time self-seeking category. Then he reiterates this point. This is the point of the arrow. There will be tribulation and distress. For every human being who does evil. the you first and also agree? Make no mistake. There will be tribulation and distress. Now, I'm just going to stop here because one of the interesting things about this for me is how I want to round this off. This is a sharp edge on eternal reality. And I want to get out my little moral file and file it off. So it doesn't have quite the point to it. In hopes that maybe there will be some who don't quite get tribulation and distress. And I want to make my own idea up. But the Christian, the, the clear Christian message here is that there's tribulation distress for everyone who does evil. Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The standard doesn't move. Okay. What do you do with this? Okay. It seems if you were, some of you have maybe read ahead, right, in the book of Romans, you've read ahead and you know that the book of Romans really is to present the case that the entire world needs Jesus as their Savior. And here it's telling me that those who have glory, honor, and peace, um, that get glory, honor, and peace if they do good. The problem is, that is the standard. Doing good is the standard. Patient persistence in well-doing is the standard. And it's this standard that he ultimately captures in the summary. The summary of this whole section is in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The whole point of this entire section is to lay out the case that That the standard is there. It's just that if we're honest about it, we don't really meet the standard. And so not meeting the standard, what are we going to do? Are we going to round the standard off? Are we going to somehow try? What are we going to do to take off the dull edge or the sharp edge and dull it down so that we don't have to deal with it? That really is the question. And I say that's the question because that's what most people do when they think about eternal things. They look for a way to make it work for them apart from the way that God reveals himself in the scriptures. And so he goes back to say, there's glory, honor, and peace for everyone that is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are these two situations. There is the Jew first, the one who would claim that Jesus, well, Jews wouldn't claim Jesus loves you. They might say God loves you, but I'm his favorite. Because that was the whole point of being Jewish. Was that they were the people of God. They had the law. They had the covenant. They had uh, the priests. They had all the religious advantages, so they must be God's favorite and then there's the Greek who is over here saying, "You know what i I'm pretty good without God." and what he's saying is the standard is the same for both. then the standard's high, and God is the one." who establishes the standard, and who will be the judge. God shows no partiality. This is, this is shattering news. Not just for the person who is good without God most of the time. This is shattering news for the person who's religious. Who expects that their advantage or their church attendance or their, their giving in the offering or they're growing up in Sunday school is going to somehow be to their advantage when the reality is that God's going to judge everyone on the same standard. And you're not going to have an advantage because you've been here this morning. You'll be accountable because you've been here this morning, but you won't get you won't be God's favorite because of that. And that's his big idea. God shows no partiality. You see, that's what we sort of. When we're not really clear about Jesus, that's what we're counting on, isn't it? That somehow that standard is underneath me. And if I have a bad day, then that standard has to get lower because I just got lower, right? And somehow, because I'm his favorite, he's going to have to take care of me. And that is not how it works. This is devastating for the religious person who is counting on their religious experience to somehow benefit them in the end. Well, this brings us to his further explanation of this same idea that God's not partial. All those who sin without the law will perish without the law. And all those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. We still have these two groups, the Jews and the Greeks, right? The, the Greeks who without the law sin, rebel against God, who not just, not just most of the time are bad, and not even just some of the time are bad, but even occasionally are dismissive of the eternal creator of the universe, those people will perish without the law. But be assured there's no partiality because those who sin under the law will be judged by it. That this holy God who speaks in His Word, He will judge you by His standard. Again, there's not... Very much wiggle room. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. You can't take comfort in the fact that you have heard about Jesus. You can't take comfort in the fact that you've heard that God is a holy, God so holy that He can't even look on sin. Just because you've heard that doesn't help you. Unless you repent you're invited by the, by the kindness of God to repent and you turn from your sin and you become a doer of the law. Okay, Again, this, this whole idea of being a doer of the law takes us back to the, the fifth uh, chapter in the whole book where he says, what we're doing here with the gospel is we are, we are creating people who live in the obedience of faith. Whose lives reflect what they believe. In other words, they do what God says. The fact of the matter is most people deceive themselves. This is what it says in James. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We we all are prone to self-deception to think that we're going to be okay when we're not going to be okay because it's us. Doesn't he know it's us? Doesn't he know it's me? Be a doer of the word and not hearer only. Don't deceive yourself. And then he goes on for just a little bit of a parenthesis. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. I just think there's a really interesting thing to insert here to remind us that we all have this innate understanding of God's moral expectation. We all have this inherent human sense that God has a moral standard to which he holds us. And he's, he's saying here, there's these folks that don't have the law. And they'll do it anyway. Reflecting somehow that we have this deep-seated theological vacuum that explains our values and our understanding. And we do. We do here. And you know it. It, someone, Someone does not have to be a Christian for you to cross their moral sensitivity. Do they? You can travel anywhere in the world and there is some vestige some, some shred of the idea that there's right and wrong, that there's good and bad, that there is a God who must be uh, somehow appeased, and this is the idea here that he's, that he's saying, we all know this. That somehow our doing good isn't going to be enough. When they do it this way, he says, they show the work of the law. Is written on their hearts that there is this deep seated understanding that we all must answer to God. And He gives a name for it, and it's the name that you use and I use it. It's a conscience. The conscience bears witness, either conflicting, their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. And all of you have had this at some point in time where. You have this sense, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. And my guess is you have that feeling when you don't know a Bible verse to go with it. You just have a sense that there is part of what it means to be human is this is this is a bad thing that I probably shouldn't be doing. And your conscience accuses you. And there are probably other times when maybe somebody else accuses you and you say, you know what? I know my motives were good, and I'm, my conscience excuses me. You have this moral compass inside of you that is imperfect because of the way that we have, uh, you know, as a human race, strain, strayed from God. But it nonetheless is there, giving us a sense of north, and a sense of what God wants from us. In that sense, will either accuse or excuse you. And ultimately, it will be part of the evidence against us when we come to judgment day on that day. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, I'm thinking about this. Think about these last two verses. Okay, there is, there is a law written on the hearts of everyone. And I want to express that in a way, so I'm going to put on the, my bumper sticker that I'm good without God. Because somehow that needs to be explained. And then, there is going to come a day when, according to the Gospel, God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And that is different than being Jesus' favorite, isn't it? You see, there is going to be an objective judgment where God is going to look at our lives to see whether or not that our faith is producing the kind of life and the kind of works and the kind of uh expression and fruit that faith ought to produce. And it says that there's coming a day of judgment when that will happen. When God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, if you're like me and you maybe you're maybe you just are so much better than me that you don't have this problem. Okay? But I'm going to just say I have some secret things I just assume you don't ever find out. Because they're not very good. And if they're not very good and because they're secret am I going to get away with it? Am I going to be Good in the end. Well, my first thought is. I sure hope so. Okay. Is there anything I can do to shave off that sharp edge on the judgment of God? I want you to notice something up here. That it says on that day when according to my gospel. When according to the good news, right? That's a, that's a literal translation of the gospel. According to the good news, he's gonna judge your secrets. Hey! I got good news for you! God is going to judge your secrets by Christ Jesus. And you have to say, How is that anything like good news? This is where I hope you become clear today. If you are hoping that there's some fluctuating standard that you meet, it's not good news. You've got secrets, right? If you're hoping that somehow there's a double standard for the two drivers of the cars, the one that's good without God and the one that's Jesus' favorite, You're hoping that there's two standards. You're in trouble. It's not good news. You see, the good news is that the standard is firm. And for all those who don't meet the standard, when they repent, they find kindness from God. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. This warning of wrath and the, the warning of God Himself knowing my secret should drive me to repentance. And then the, the the knowledge that in fact when I do repent, God accepts me because of Jesus. That is good news. And as good as you may try and be from here forward in hopes that God will be appeased. There is always those things in the, in the background that have already taken place that we're all in trouble for unless there is forgiveness. I just want to, the good news of this is that God has not left us without hope. He's left us without hope in ourselves. Be clear. But he's not left us without hope. In Hebrews it says there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We, don't, we can't round that off or soften that. That's not the answer. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. In other words, let's hang on to the fact that Jesus has died for sins and rose again. But we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, there is a standard and somebody meets it. His name is Jesus. In the fact that He meets it, and that He stood in and died on the cross in our place, and then rose again, expressing that God accepts that exchange. Means that God can offer you kindness and me kindness when we repent. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is no there is no curve. There is no double standard. There is one standard. Jesus meets it and offers grace and mercy to those who come to Him needing it. Another way this is expressed in perhaps the shortest form is in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For our sake... For the sake of those who don't persist enough in doing good. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. The one that met the standard accepted my sin. So that in him or because of him, we all might be made right or righteous before God. This, What God expects of us can be met. It has been met by Jesus. And when Jesus essentially... I mean, you can think of it, if you're just stuck in the classroom here and you're stuck on the grading on the curve thing, Jesus aced the test, right? If you're trusting in Him, it's not cheating for Him to hand you His test paper. Even though you had no idea how to get the right answers on the test. This is a little bit of an imperfect illustration. But the idea being that someone else has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself so that you might meet the standard of goodness that God has. And See, then it is good news because you are shielded from that judgment. Because when... Your secrets are known by God when you give account that account is something like this oh well here's here's Scott freely, and here's the righteousness of Jesus freely given to him, so that all of those sins are gone. All of that failure is. Erase. I can accept you you see that it's really that simple and I just want to beg you this morning don't try and soften it don't try and take elements of it away and say there is no judgment or that sin's not that bad or I'm better than some people don't do that because the news isn't good if you're pretending there's a curve and there's no curve. The news is only good if someone who meets the standard brings you up to this standard, And that's what happens when you trust in Jesus. Let me pray for this. Heavenly Father, we are we are just really in need of your help and mercy. God, you've told us that we can find grace, that we can find mercy if we turn to you. God, I pray that everyone in earshot this morning would have that gnawing feeling that they must turn. Jesus. God, would you help us to do that. Help us to admit that we don't meet the standard. And to trust in Jesus who does. God, don't let us pretend any longer. But help us, I pray, in the name of Jesus.